0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminals. As always, I'm your host, Simon. I'm say one of my writers, in this case, Matthew. Thank you, Matthew. He's written me a script, The Watts Family Disappearance. Very simple title there, Matthew. I, know, I mean, it's about family disappearing, and the name is Watts. I've never heard of this one. If you're new here, the format of this show, you might be wondering what's going on. <laughs> what are you talking about? Have you come to this completely unprepared, Simon? And the answer is yes, because that's the format of the show. Matt has written me a script. I've never read it before. We're going to enjoy it together, dear audience. So settle in. Grab a cup of coffee, pour a glass of wine, depending on the time of day, or if you're an alcoholic. (laughs) Well, whatever, I don't mind. Let's get into it. Although the internet is now a part of everyone's daily lives, except for Ted Kaczynski, because he's dead. That was a terrible joke. I was like, you know... I was going to go with Ted Kaczynski. I guess it was a better joke than I intended it to be because I was like, initially I was going to go like Ted Kaczynski because he hated technology. But no, because he's dead because he died in prison. <coughs> Poor Ted. <laughs> no one feels sorry for me he bombed people. Although he's surprisingly big brains. Like, he wasn't, like, he, he went about things the wrong way. But he, he, <laughs> it feels strange to say that Ted Kaczynski had a fucking point, but... Kind of. There's still much debate about whether having 24-7 access to the entire world is a net positive or a net negative for society or well, you and me and Ted Kaczynski. On one hand, it allows you to speak with just about anyone as quickly as you could pull out your cell phone and swipe past the multiple Fox News articles your grandmother messaged you on Facebook. This is why I don't have Facebook, a grandmother, or Fox <laughs> God, Why are we talking about so much death? All my grandparents are dead. Like I, have fo- I had four grandparents. And it's weird because I have three grandmothers and one grandfather, not because they're like progressive or anything, but because I have a step family and they're my granddads were both dead before I was born, which is why I'm afraid to get. We recently had a sponsor come to our site and they want to sponsor cash equivalence. It's a large amount of money. And I'm like, oh, what is it? And they're like, oh, it's a genetic testing thing. And I'm like, I don't want to know. <laughs> all my, all, but all my granddads were dead before I was born. Do you really think I want to know about the various diseases? They're going to kill me. And I mean, the answer is kind of yes, because I go for that medical and they put me on drugs because I'm like, you know, at risk for various things. And, um, but I'm not sure I really want to know whether I've got like Huntington's or um, one of those Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, all of that shit. I just I don't want to know. You can't pay me to know that. On the other hand, it will likely result in the complete destruction of privacy, objective truth, and possibly democracy itself. So overall, the answer is still a bit of a toss-up. But with that being said, there is one thing that most people can agree on regarding the internet, and that's its negative effect on people's perception of reality. On websites like Instagram, a platform where nearly everything you see is heavily photoshopped, filtered, and reviewed before people upload, people can create a version of themselves that barely reflects reality, if it reflects reality at all. I have to say, I don't use TikTok, I don't use Instagram, I don't use Facebook. I barely use Twitter. I just like upload videos to YouTube and then like watch videos I like on YouTube. And none of those videos are, like people flexing about weird shit. The closest I get is when I get force fed from YouTube. Shorts, it's fucking Daniel Mack videos. Oh, what do you do for a living? And it's like, well done, Daniel. This is the most creative. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. something so hard, but it's like the least creative thing I've ever seen. Hey man, what do you do for a living? What do I do for a living? Well, I drive fast and eat ass. What the hell do you do for a living? I ask people what they do for a living. Well, I guess they make anybody famous nowadays. <laughs> and then when he... Tra- <laughs> I'm going to stop doing on Daniel Matt because it's a bit of a meme, isn't it? But let's not. Let's not. Let's just move on. But I don't see any of this stuff. I live in my own little bubble of like me and my mates and the few people that I follow on YouTube. And that's it. And I'm very happy that way because I don't need to be comparing my life to other people's because it would make them feel bad, wouldn't it? This is a huge problem because those who spend too much time obsessing over people's perfect online personas inevitably begin to feel the compulsive need to sanitize their own lives to appear equally as perfect. To many, this may come as no surprise, but to others, particularly young people who were born after the internet boom, not realizing how fake the internet is poses a real danger, as the problem has a compounding effect. I've, yeah, this is something I'm going to have to hammer into my kids, because it's like Matthew's absolutely right. It does project this, like, perfect image of people's lives, and it's like, yo, that's just a tiny snapshot. Like, most of their life is probably just like yours. But then again, also, it pro- might, might not be. Like, if you're following, like, I don't know, one of the Kardashians or something, it's like, look, their lives is probably, like, they're going to be driving around in a lot more Ferraris than you are, to be honest. And it's like, yeah, yeah, but it's, that's just the sanitised version. It's like, well, no, they, they do have more Ferraris. <laughs> and they'll be like, so, Dad, what's, what's your point exactly? It's like, I don't know what my point is. <laughs> just try and be happy with yourself but the reality that's probably not gonna just that's just gonna come with age isn't it (laughs) try not to be too miserable while you get older and realize that everything's gonna be okay i'm sorry for all of the tangents Like i haven't recorded one of these in like two weeks because i went on holiday and i feel like i've just got to let out all of the thoughts that have been festering in my mind for the last two weeks because if i did it just to my wife she'd go mad If this vicious cycle continues unabated for several years, eventually you will have a generation in which 1 in 5 teenagers claim to have never taken a selfie without a filter in their entire lives. That is a real statistic. Well, fuck me. That's mental. (laughs) Uh, But the problem goes even deeper than that. Just like many people edit their photos to appear thinner, taller, or less bald, looks good on you, Simon. (laughs) Yeah, it's like these videos, it's like we, we have like... A Lumetri filter, which is basically just color correction, but no one's smoothing out my beautiful skin. No one's adding me a luscious head of hair. Many also misinterpret the details of their lives to keep up that illusion of perfection. For some, this simply means not posting about the negative aspects of their life, such as recently diagnosed illness or a death in the family, but for others, it means outright fabricating entire portions of their lives for the camera, including their relationships with other people. In this episode of The Casual Criminals, we'll be taking- Oh yeah, this is an episode about true crime, not on, you know, Matthew expounds about the, the benefits and drawbacks of social media. <laughs> We're six minutes in, everybody! Let me interrupt today's episode of the podcast to tell about our glorious sponsor, and that would be Shopify. You hear that sound? That is the sound of a sale you're missing out on because you're not selling on Shopify. And what does it sound like when you are selling on Shopify? Tell me. Much better. And that's why you should start selling with Shopify today. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or you're IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. They put you in control of every sales channel, so whether you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system, or you're offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are absolutely covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers into buyers, absolutely essential. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, which is an absurdly high number. And Shopify is a truly global force powering Allbirds, Rothies, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support you every step of the way. This is possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com casual, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com casual to take your business to the next today shopify.com/casual and now back to today's episode. We'll be taking a look at a family, the Watts family from Frederick, Colorado, who were living their lives as I've just described. Online they appeared as happy as any modern American family could be, but behind the scenes, countless secrets and well-hidden pains were quickly pushing them toward disaster. The disappearance the nightmare began at around 1:40 pm on August 13th, 2018, when the Frederick County Police Dispatches line received a call from a woman named Nicole Atkinson. According to Nicole, she was concerned about her friend Shannon. 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 Shannon I've got pronunciation guide. Shannon Watts, because I'm definitely going to pronounce that Shannon throughout this video, so just a heads up. Shannon had not been answering her phone calls or text. I've never heard the name Shannon or text messages all morning and had missed an important doctor's appointment, something that was exceptionally uncharacteristic of her. As her friend, Nicole then told the dispatcher that she'd driven to Shannon's home at 2825 Saratoga Trail to check on her. However, after receiving no answer at the door and noticing that Shannon's white Lexus was still inside her garage, she became even more concerned. Maybe Shannon just wants a little chill time. Maybe she's like, I'm having the morning off from social media. I'm just going to, I don't know, watch some Netflix or whatever people do. They don't feel left to go to work and shit. (laughs) Shannon was diabetic, Nicole said, and had not been feeling well for the past few days. She also had two young daughters, three-year-old Cece and four-year-old Bella. Neither of which had responded when she called out to them from outside the home's front door. Based on all the evidence available to her, Nicole worried that Shannon may have passed out, was in need of immediate medical assistance. She'd called 911 to request a welfare check. Okay, cool. Now, this seems like pretty sensible. And it's one of those things, I don't know if I, if I was in that situation, I'd be like, I guess I'll just come back later. Because I'd be like, I don't want to bother the people on 911. 9- uh, I'd be like, that's through emergencies. That's the feel like if someone's getting murdered right outside my house, right? But it's like, no, I just give them a ring. And if they think it's nothing, they'll tell you it's nothing. But they'll probably just send someone around to check out everything's okay, which is nice. It's, you know, it's what you pay for, it's where your, your tax dollars are going. Just, I don't know, because I mean, it's easy for me to say, because in this one it's definitely going to turn out that something's wrong, because otherwise this would be the only true crime episode ever which ends with a short and very happy ending. Well, yes. Several minutes later, Officer Scott Conrad. Why does everyone have weird names today? That's spelled like Coonrod. Coonrod. But it should be like Conrad, right? It doesn't matter. Of the Frederick County Police Department arrived outside the Watts' home to meet with her. He stepped out, greeted Nicole and her 17-year-old son, Nicholas, who was standing beside her, and then looked beyond them to the Watts' large yellow home. As a new build, the home was modern and socketed tightly into a neighborhood of similar homes that surrounded it on all sides. Yeah, it's just like, why why are the homes so close together in America? You have a lot of space, right? But then you go out to the suburbs, and it's like, you've got these massive houses and they all have, like, tiny gardens. Why is that? It seems very, like, in the UK, I'll speak for the UK. If there's a big house generally has a big garden because people like gardens but you see those like suburbs and it's like just really big houses but they're all like squashed next to each other why is that is that like a zoning thing trying to explain the situation nicole told Coonrad that she and shannon had been out of town for a business meeting in arizona the past few days and had just returned home the previous night nicole herself was the person who had dropped shannon off at around 1 am approximately 12 hours earlier that was the last time that she'd seen or spoken to her friend And as far as Nicole was aware, she had been planning to sleep immediately since she had not been feeling well and was 18 weeks pregnant. The doctor's appointment that Shannon had missed was an emergency checkup to verify the health of her baby. Okay, yeah, if you don't show up to that, it's going to be like, something's up. Especially, like, why are you having an emergency checkup? That's probably, like, quite urgent. Do Do you have an appointment for an emergency checkup? That seems almost, like, oxymoronic. It's like an emergency checkup would kind of be like, well, you don't have an appointment. You just got to go into the hospital, don't you? Not wanting to waste any time, Coonrod quickly began attempting to contact Shannon or her her daughter's. He knocked on the front door, called out to them, and then proceeded on foot toward the home's rear entrance, knocking on and peering through each of the home's windows as he went. At the back of the house, atop a tall wooden deck, he knocked several times on the rear sliding glass door, and then he called out to them once again, still receiving no response. All right, dude, get the big, that that hammer thing that they used to go through. Doors, or just kick it down. Let's go. Or just, I don't know, maybe break a small window. <laughs> That'd probably be less expensive to repair, wouldn't it? He then circled around to the home's front entrance to reconvene with Nicole. Unfortunately, Coonrod explained, he did not yet have probable cause to enter the premises because all the home's curtains were drawn and did not witness anything that indicated Shannon was in immediate danger. That meant that, as of the moment, all he could do was continue to attempt to make contact from outside until some justification for him to enter presented itself, if it ever did. At that point, If I was Nicole, like, I'm just predicting what would happen next. I'll be very concerned about my friends. I'll be like, all right, officer, look, this is my mate's house. I'm going to go break that window and hop inside and make sure everything's okay. And you can watch and make sure that I don't do anything naughty. And then I'm just going to pay for the repair. Or my mate, Nicole, uh, Shannon's going to pay for the repair and everything's going to be fine. Is that cool? And the officer's probably going to be like, yeah, that's cool. Because, you know, (laughs) I'm not going to arrest you for breaking into someone's house where you've been like, yeah, it's my mate's house. You can watch me. Blah, blah, blah. Right. And office... How strict are officers? Are they going to stick right to the letter of the law and be like, hey, don't break into someone's house? I'll be like, yeah, okay, do what I can't do. Because if I was really concerned for my mate, I'll smash that fucking window and I'll be like, let's see what's up. Right? Nicole then informs Kunra that she knew the code to Shannon's front door but could not open it more than a few inches because the safety latch was engaged from the inside. At his request, Nicole inputted the code and then all three of them took turns shouting through the narrow gap, trying to bring either Shannon, Bella or Cece to the door and watching diligently for signs of movement from within. When this didn't work, Coonrod inquired about the whereabouts of Shannon's husband, Christopher Watts. According to Nicole, she had contacted Chris multiple times that morning to see if he had any information, but Chris had denied knowing anything. He had told her that he left Shannon in bed earlier that morning at around 5am and that she would mentioned something about a play date for Bella and Cece. He had not asked who the play date was with, where they were going to be, or when they would return. When Nicole pointed out that Shannon's Lexus was still inside the garage and asked Chris to return home as quickly as possible, he said she should not worry because Shannon and the girls had likely been picked up by a friend and would return home shortly. Uh-oh, Chris is on the run because he's murdered his family, hasn't he? I've seen CSI, it's always the husband, and the husband's acting mega-sketch." When Nicole asked him to again return for just a moment to open the garage door to allow her inside, Chris said that he couldn't, because as an awful old operator working in the desert many miles outside of town, he couldn't just drop everything in a moment's notice to drive the long distance back to Frederick. He then reassured Nicole that Shannon was fine and would call her back soon. Unsatisfied, Nicole then told Chris that if he didn't return home immediately, she was going to call the police, and upon hearing this, Chris said to wait because if she was that worried about it, he could be there in 45 minutes. Nicole agreed, hung up the phone, and waited for him for her to arrive. One hour later, there was still no sign of him, and that was when she had dialed 911. Feeling that he had a slightly better understanding of the situation, Coonrod then asked for Chris's cell phone number to speak with the man himself. When he dialed it, Chris picked up and confirmed everything that Nicole had said about the play date and revealed that he was still on his way. He'd been stuck in heavy interstate traffic, but was only five minutes out. The officer then hung up the phone and, feeling uneasy, he radioed in a request for his supervisor. Ooh, I wonder why he feels uneasy. He's got that cop's intuition, doesn't he? Because I'm like listening to this story and I'm like, he hangs up the phone and he'd be like, cool, we'll wait five minutes. There's probably nothing. But he's got that cop's intuition and he's like something's up the home minutes after speaking with coonrod chris watts pulled his work truck to the curb outside the home on saratoga trail and stepped out greeting the officer as he did standing at 5 foot 10 inches tall chris was dressed in jeans a long sleeve t-shirt and had sunglasses resting atop his close-cut brown hair He was dirty, as was to be expected from someone who worked in an oil field, but overall seemed surprisingly put together when compared to Nicole and Nicholas. Despite the urgent situation, Chris introduced himself and shook the officer's hand before opening the garage door and inviting them inside. As the four of them passed through the garage, Nicole pointed out that both Bella and Cece's car seats were still buckled into the back seat of Shannon's car. To her, this suggested that they had not called for a ride, as Chris had suggested, because those car seats were the only one that the couple owned. Then, as Nicole explained the situation to Shannon's mother over the phone, Coonrod walked from room to room searching for signs of the missing mother and her children. He checked the bedrooms, bathrooms, living room, and the large unfinished basement with no luck. Well, don't they have to be in there because of the security… Oh, they could've… Oh, I see. I'm, like, I'm thinking the security chain on the front door means that someone's inside, but they could put the security chain on and then go out through the garage door, right? I guess that's fairly common and a large unfinished basement with no luck peering inside every closet and utility room along the way. At the base of the home's main staircase, he noted that there was a large suitcase, the one that Shannon had used for a trip with Nicole the previous day, which had yet to be unpacked. In the kitchen, Shannon's purse, which contained her driver's license and card wallet, was sitting on the counter. These were items that she would obviously not willingly leave home without. However, other than those things, Nothing else seemed out of place. Everything from the furniture to the children's toys were exceptionally tidy and organized, and there were no signs of foul play or break-in. <laughs> Just like the children's toys were exceptionally neat and tidy. I'm like, well, <laughs> that's not what my home is like, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> that kid's playroom sometimes is like, guys, it was tidy five minutes ago. How did you do this? How? The girls' beds were even made, and Shannon's bathroom appeared spotless. It was as if the three of them had simply vanished into thin air, taking absolutely nothing with them as they went. Upstairs, even more evidence was found that pointed toward this conclusion. Shannon and the children were each prescribed medication, and the bottles for each were still sitting inside the family's medicine cabinet, untouched. The only thing that Chris could immediately identify as missing from the home was Bella and Cece's blankets. He said that they never left home without them and would cry if they were forgotten. Chris didn't claim to know where his family had gone, but he believed they'd left in a hurry. People still, if you're leaving in a hurry, you still take your wallet because you're like, well, at some point today I'm going to need money. He was holding on to, and like if you're going for more than one night like i wouldn't forget my drugs like that little drug box. It's like that comes with me everywhere people don't forget this shit. he was still holding on to hope that they were safe somewhere however nicole could not believe it and the next discovery made would in her mind confirm her suspicions after searching for it briefly chris discovered shannon's cell phone wedged between two couch cushions in the upstairs living room he brought the phone to nicole silently laying it before her I'm becoming less suspicious of Chris because he's like, oh, I found that. Although maybe he's like, yeah, I had it on me. And then I'm like, oh, look, I found it here. Or I don't know. Maybe I still am suspicious of Chris. If Chris is innocent, I'm really sorry, Chris. If you're not, I'm not. Okay, let's see where this goes. The pair and Coonrod stared at it in silence. To the officer, it was just a cell phone. But to Chris and Nicole, the implication was obvious. You see, Shannon was not a casual cell phone user, as by her own admission, her phone was her life. This was because she was very active on social media and had grown a sizable following as a mumfluencer. For her followers, there's that story going on right now of that woman who had that like parenting podcast or whatever, and like one of her kids escaped. He was like tied up and like malnutrition's in her house or something. It's a crazy story. It's like, holy shit. For her followers, she posted daily updates that included videos of heartwarming family moments, playdates, birthday parties, and other special events. She would never go anywhere without her camera out of fear of missing something noteworthy. Additionally, Shannon also worked as a direct sales agent for Lavelle, a multi-level marketing company, and sold distributed weight loss patches, pills, and shakes, as well as dietary supplements. <laughs> multi-level marketing company. We all know that's another word for, don't we? That I'm not going to say, because obviously I wouldn't want to get in any trouble, But, (laughs) MLM, right? Right? She was, according to Nicole, always working, and her cell phone was the only way that her customers ever contacted her. Even on her days off or days when she wasn't feeling well, Shannon would still attempt to sell anyone she came across because her job was something she took great pride in. Sounds really annoying, to be honest. At this point, Nicole asked Chris if he knew the phone's passcode, but Chris claimed not to. Nicole was able to guess it. The six-digit code was the baby's due date. Wow, Isaac. Really? That's... People change their codes. That Should I change my PIN code more often? (laughs) Like My PIN code has been the same since... Well, it's been embarrassingly long, I'll tell you that much. While reviewing the call log, they discovered that Shannon, in fact, had not made any calls or texts that morning, which further indicated that nobody had picked the three of them up. Trying to gauge Shannon's mood, Coonrod then asked her how Shannon had been acting that morning when Chris left, and Chris stated that she seemed completely normal. They'd spoken briefly in bed after Nicole had dropped her off at around 2am, but she had not indicated to him that anything was wrong. He'd left for work before sunup at around 6 a.m. while she was still in bed. After this, Chris searched again the master bedroom and discovered Shannon's wedding ring sitting atop her nightstand. This was when he first revealed to Coonrod that he and Shannon were actively seeking a divorce. Coonrod asked how things were going, and Chris said, civilly, Oh, God, like, bro. (laughs) I'm like, now I'm like, "Chris, Chris, 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 Chris. You get a divorce, huh? Your family's gone missing, huh? You tried to deflect, huh? Oh, Chris! Again, I'm sorry if you're innocent, Chris, but it's not looking good for you, mate, right now. <laughs> We've all seen CSI. E- e- that cop is like, it's Chris, it's Chris, it's Chris, it's that's what's is blaring in his mind. He's like, where's my supervisor? It's Chris, it's Chris. <laughs> the neighbor. As other officers and detectives were arriving outside the home, Chris and Officer Coenrod walked across the narrow grass that separated Chris's home from that of his neighbor, Nathaniel Trina Stitch. Fortunately for the investigation, Nathaniel had an extensive security system installed, which included a motion-activated camera that pointed toward the Watts's driveway and garage. When he heard that Chris's wife and children were missing, he did the neighborly thing and offered to show them the footage from that morning and the previous night. As they all stood around the television, I recently asked my apartment building management company to put in some security cameras because we had a push chair, or as Americans would call it, a stroller, um, downstairs in like this little parking bay where you can park your like strollers. And there's a few other strollers there. And it's like we had a a crappy stroller. And then I was like, okay, we're going to buy a nice stroller because it really upset me. Or my wife was like, this is really annoying. And so we bought a nice stroller. I mean, not like crazy or anything, but it was, it was like a fucking grand or something absurd. And so we had it like chained up down there. It was always fine. And then one day i just come down and it's like, oh, it's not there anymore. And I so someone had obviously clipped the chain and nicked the stroller. And it's inside our apartment building. So I don't know whether it was someone off the street or someone in our apartment building, but I was like, yeah, can we put in some cameras, please? Because that was really annoying. Um, thanks for that tangent, Simon. Fascinating. I had to buy a new stroller. <sighs> Jesus Christ. And they're so expensive. They really are. It's, it's, a, it's such a fucking racket. They all stood around the television in Nathaniel's living room, Rick recording playing that showed Nicole dropping Shannon off the prior night. In another clip that was recorded several hours later, Chris could be seen backing his truck into the garage to load his tools for work. However, what neither clip showed was Shannon or the children leaving the house at any point. There was no footage of that event, because it had ostensibly never happened. Oh my god, are they still in the house? Are they still in the house somehow? Seeing that the footage was a dead end, Chris then turned to leave his neighbor's home and go speak with a new detective who just arrived at the scene, but Coonrod took this opportunity to speak to Nathaniel alone. He wanted to see if Nathaniel knew anything else that could be useful for the investigation, and this turned out to be a wise decision because the slightly nosy neighbor was a wealth of information. Without prompting, as soon as Chris was out of earshot, Nathaniel claimed that Chris was not acting right. Obviously, he acknowledged the man was shaken up by the entire ordeal, but the behaviors he had demonstrated while reviewing the footage, rocking back and forth, speaking nervously, and taking deep, calming breaths every few seconds as if he were on the verge of a panic attack, had struck Nathaniel as exceptionally out of character. I. (laughs) This is these things. I remember I went on a trip like a couple of weeks ago. It's one of these holidays I went on. I'm going through. I took a giant road trip. I went to the Isle of Man where my uncle lives. And I was like driving there and I'm like crossing over from France to England. And they're like, I, and it's mad suspicious because I've got a big, it's like I have, I bought like a, a an off-roading, like big four by four overland car, which I use for adventures. And it's like got a big roof tent on top. It's got giant wheels. <laughs> it's wonderful with the environment. <laughs> and I'm like, look, if anyone's ca-. and also I'm traveling to the UK, but I, oh, what was this? Oh yeah. I'm driving a check plated car. I've got a check driver's license. Um, but I sound like fully British. And so they're like, okay, you need to go over and like, the customers going to have a look at your car or whatever. And they're like, you seem a bit nervous. And I'm like, yes, I know, there's nothing wrong. It's just I don't like being searched. <laughs> like, I don't. And they're all like, so what are you doing? What are you doing over here? Where do you live? What's all this? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and so, of course, I seem nervous I'm having my car like looked into by the coppers. <laughs> and then I, 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 someone who definitely wasn't me, I'd never admit to this, but let's just say there's there's another person who I heard a very similar story, who isn't me, happened and they'd bought some salami in France to take back to the UK on this journey that they were taking, which definitely wasn't me. And it's just like, you know, one of those big French delicious salamis. And I just, and that person had just thrown it in the boot of their car. And I arrive, uh, that person arrives at their parents' house and is like, hey, that person has brought this salami and some wine. And that person's parents were like, you know, it's illegal to bring in meats. <laughs> and I'm like, and that person's like, no, didn't know that. And they the fortunately, the customs people didn't notice that there's a big old salami <laughs> just sitting in the back of the car. Definitely not my car, not my story, someone else's story. Thanks for that story, Simon. No one cares. Let's get back to today's episode. Actually, although Nathaniel had not wanted to say anything while Chris was standing right beside him, he revealed that Chris never loaded his tools for work in the morning, because he never unloaded those tools in the evening. Usually Chris parked his truck at the curb and carried everything he needed for work, in his arms across the lawn. A lunchbox, a water jug, and a laptop bag were the only things that he normally took with him. Although Nathaniel had never once seen Chris back his work truck up to the garage door in that manner and not so subtly suggested that he may have been trying to load something else into the truck bed. Oh, what? Nathaniel's like, nah, no, nah, nah, yeah, it's Chris. He murdered his family and put them in the back of the truck.
1: <laughs>
0: what? Nathaniel! <laughs> You're just like instantly it'd be like me, be like, well, I don't think my is a murderer. Statistically, it's really unlikely. Nathaniel's all like, yeah, he is. <laughs> he's probably murdered his family and put them in the back of the truck. What other reason would he have to back the truck up into the garage? Why would he be doing that? <laughs> but unfortunately, because of the angle at which the camera was mounted, the footage did not reveal the inside of the garage or what had been loaded. This round <laughs> sorry for shitting on Nathaniel so much. Obviously, it's he's he's really helping here. The revelation concerned Coenrod, however, and the next thing the neighbor said was even more concerning. Oh, shit. Officially, Chris and Shannon had not yet announced their divorce, but Nathaniel suggested that the couple must be having marital problems because, on multiple occasions, he had overheard them screaming at each other late into the night. In fact, this had become such a common occurrence that Shannon and her children had been out of town the past several weeks before a business meeting. Oh my god, Chris, you're looking guilty as fuck, my bro. Come on, come on. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, it's just my wife. It's fine. It's like, oh no, we are getting divorced, but it's amicable. Oh no, we were screaming at each other every night. <laughs> she had been staying with her family in North Carolina, and Nathaniel assumed that she was trying to distance herself from Chris's abusive baby. Oh, that was abusive. <laughs> Chris! Chris is going to prison! Or maybe the chair. If you murder your family, Chris, you're going to get in that chair. What state are we in? North Carolina. That's quite yeehaw, isn't it? North Carolina's going to... I feel like North Carolina's like one of those states, they still got a gas chamber. They're going to gas him. <laughs> Jesus Christ, if he's innocent. I don't know this story, but I get the feeling he's guilty, right? Perhaps you're right. Obviously, the divorce was not as civil as Chris had suggested. Back inside the Watts home, detectives were reaching out to Shannon's fam... Sharnan's family and preparing to present Chris with a consent form that would allow them to search his home from top to bottom for evidence. Immediately, without question, Chris agreed. He said that they had free reign to do whatever they needed to bring his family home. After even more officers arrived, they then did exactly that. They combed through every inch of the home, even getting down on their hands and knees to look at the carpet and the baseboards, searching for blood droplets or anything difficult to spot. They found nothing. No blood. No signs of a struggle, no signs of a clean-up, and other than the fact that all of Shannon's important possessions were still inside the home, nothing appeared out of order. Nothing except for one thing. The master bedroom's bedsheets were missing. When sorting through the laundry, they could not be located, but while searching the kitchen trash can, a top sheet and two pillowcases were found stuffed inside. Chris, really? If that is evidence, you've just chucked it in the bin and then invited the police to search your home? Why the fuck are you not burning that? What's wrong with you? There was no sign of the fitted bottom sheet, which would have completed the set. Knowing that they were in over their heads and that the first 24 hours in any investigation are the most critical, investigators immediately called in the FBI for special assistance. They also enlisted the help of volunteers, who began going door-to-door canvassing the neighborhood surrounding the Watts home and handing out flyers to passers-by. Chris himself even went on the evening news to issue what he believed was a heartfelt plea, begging for information. However, for those watching at home, this plea came across as cold and artificial. When ignoring what chris was saying and focusing solely on his demeanor he appeared wholly unconcerned visually he was also still well put together and appeared rested not at all how one would expect someone to look when their wife and children were missing witnessing this interview live the fbi knew that it was time to take a closer look at mr and mrs watts the many secrets of chris and shannon watts now, normally, married problems between two non famous people are not considered noteworthy enough to hide so carefully. However, as we briefly touched on earlier, Shannon was not exactly an ordinary person. Online, she was a small-time influencer that attempted to present herself as an idealistic wife and mother, but doing so required her to show her and Chris's relationship in the best possible light. This meant that her Facebook feed was filled with pictures of them and their children smiling for the camera, laughing together, and showing off their life. As a result, Shannon's many followers, including most of her family and friends, had no clue that the pair were having marital problems of any kind, much less ones that were quickly spiraling toward divorce. Yeah, they were screaming at each other, and didn't we just say that Chris was abusive? God, that is like, that is definite bad divorce material. To give you some idea of just how artificial their relationship had become, Shannon had been posting updates to Facebook, Where she talked about missing chris the entire time that she was staying with her parents in north carolina to escape his abuse but this trend of faking things for the camera was not new for the couple as when the police searched shannon's phone they discovered that she had been producing artificial content for years for example to announce their most recent pregnancy shannon had posted a video to facebook that began with her standing in frame and revealing to viewers that she was wearing a t-shirt that read oops we did it again the obvious implication was that she was pregnant. In the video, Shannon then takes a step behind the camera, leaving it pointed toward an open archway and waits. A moment later, Chris walks into the room, sees the shirt, laughs, and then goes to her. They embrace off-camera, and then Chris walks back into frame to pr- proudly present a positive pregnancy test. Had this moment been real, this would have been a sweet moment for the couple to cherish. <laughs> sweet and also very, very cheesy. <laughs> it's like those gender reveal things, right? It's like, oh... <laughs> It's so cheesy, Americans. Which is how I was presented to her followers. However, this was not Chris's genuine reaction, as he had known that Shana was pregnant before the camera started rolling. The pair had staged the entire scene to make the announcement more exciting. Furthermore, Chris was not excited about the pregnancy in the slightest. As text messages on Shannon's phone revealed, the pair had actually discussed an abortion not long before filming the video. This was just one of many instances that were faked for the camera because, in truth, the Watts family had been fabricating content around their personal life for years. This sounds so miserable. Like, it just sounds miserable. Just having to live this, like, faked life. Like, I'm glad my... Work like my inf- influencer, <laughs> I don't like that word, but like my YouTubing is it happens in my office and I get to tell you guys little stories about my life that you probably don't care about and all of that sort of stuff. But it's like I get to tell the stories that I want to tell, I don't tell the ones that I don't want to tell. Um, and yeah, I don't have to present some like fake shit, I just get to do what I want. And then when I go home, it's like it's just my life. My ordinary, nice little middle-aged man with nice little family. <laughs> it's just regular ass life that I don't have to present to anybody for anything. I just get to live my regular ass life. And I like that. I really like that. It's really nice just getting to be a regular person when you go home. And just, am a regular person all the time. But like, you know, like other than these like influences that have to leave, leave this like mummy blog life or whatever, fuck that. They were truthful about the major parts, such as being married, having two children together, where they worked, and so on, but the smaller details were all fantasy. Part of the reason that Shannon likely felt driven to present herself this way was because of her job. As mentioned earlier, Shannon worked for Lavelle, a multi level marketing company. Ah that relies heavily on social media to promote and sell its products, which meant that Shannon's large social media presence had allowed her to become an extremely successful saleswoman at the company. Yet, despite the predatory nature of MLMs, and we're definitely not saying that Lavelle would natural- na- would be predatory, we're just saying that Lavelle is uh, apparently a multi-level marketing company and some MLMs are known for being predatory. We'd never say that about any specific L- MLL, would we, Matthew? Uh, no. Shannon claimed to be making between $65,000 and $70,000 per year, and her and Chris's home and lifestyle reflected that. Is that... (laughs) I don't want to sound out of touch, but... And it's mostly not me... It's It's not being out... I don't want this to sound out of touch, because it's mostly me not knowing much about American income. But America, when I've ever been to America, is very expensive. And... People make a lot of money in America. It's 65,000 to seven because that doesn't feel that different from the UK, like an average earnings in the UK, right? Of like 35 grand a year or something. I think it's the median. Um, So that doesn't feel like an extraordinarily lavish lifestyle, does it? Or maybe I just don't know. They took frequent vacations and family trips. They drove expensive, and expensive cars like 50, 60 grand, isn't it? You're spending all your money, annual income on on a car, They wore nice clothes, none of which would have been possible on Chris's income alone. Oh, okay, yeah, of course, Chris works as well. By revealing their divorce, the entire social media image as a happy wife and mother and possibly her sales numbers would have been destroyed overnight. Obviously, the revelation would have shocked those that knew the couple. However, the secrets that the Watts family kept from the world hailed in comparison to the ones that Chris kept from Shannon, Based on text messages found on her phone, she suspected her husband of having an affair. And when police searched Chris's phone, they found deleted pictures of him with one of his female co-workers, a woman named Victoria Miller. Oh, Chris, what are you doing? You've always got to empty the trash, Chris. Burn those bed sheets, Chris. Empty the trash on your, the your the, the trash icon. What are you up to? Come on now. <laughs> According to Victoria herself, she was a geologist, working on contract with the Environmental Services Department at Chris's workplace, and she had met him one day in their office when he introduced himself. At the time, Chris wasn't wearing his wedding ring, and she was not aware that he was married. She also said that during their initial interaction, he was soft-spoken, kind, and a great listener, which immediately attracted her to him. However, when Victoria later learned from another co-worker that Chris was married, he told her in confidence that he and Shannon were seeking a divorce and they were no longer romantically involved. In Victoria's mind, Chris and his wife's relationship was over, and Chris was a single man. Yeah, fair assumptions. Like, it's not the it's not the 1950s. You don't, or whenever it was, you don't have to be divorced, actually like through with it before you go and like seek out a new partner, as long as that other partner's aware that you're getting divorced. It's like you've broken up. It's just you're going through the legal motions, which takes a really long-ass time. I've got a couple of friends who got divorced. It's complicated. Holy shit. She was not aware that no paperwork had been filed, nothing had been officially decided, or that Shannon was pregnant with Chris's third child and desperately trying to resolve the problems in their marriage. Obviously, Victoria said in later interviews that if she'd known that Chris and Shannon were still together, she would not have pursued a relationship with him, but Chris lied about everything to both of them for months. She had no idea that she was Chris's secret mistress. What happened after this was pretty standard as far as affairs go. After chatting casually in the office for a few weeks, Chris had taken the next step by inviting Victoria out to lunch, where they often discussed. Discussed his impending divorce. This then led to dinner, which led to romance, which led to the pair meeting up regularly for after work sex. Yeah, you like that? As late work days became all nighters and Chris went from withdrawn to mentally absent, Shannon began to suspect that something was going on, but she had no proof. In text messages exchanged between Shannon and her closest friends, she revealed that she and Chris had cancelled their planned gender reveal party because of their unresolved problems. Some of the messages read, quote, I grabbed his hand during the ultrasound, and he didn't grab back. Another. He has changed. I don't know who he is. He hasn't touched me all week. Kiss me. Talk to me. Except for when I'm trying to figure out what is wrong. Another one. The only thing I can think of, even though I don't think he has it in him, is another girl." And that's the end. In the weeks before Shannon's disappearance, Victoria discovered the pregnancy, but Chris said that the baby was not his. He claims that Shannon had cheated on him. <laughs> is anyone down Chris' guilt right now? <laughs> what are the odds it's not Chris? It started as being like, ah, I think it's Chris, but let's say it's 40%, and then it's 60%, and now it's like, Chris is guilty. The Interview When investigators finally sat Chris down inside an interrogation room, they already knew much of what I just told you. They had seen the text messages documenting Chris and Shannon's rocky relationship, as well as Chris and Victoria's secret affair. However, they kept their cards close to their chests. They didn't yet have any physical evidence that Chris was involved in the disappearance, but by this point, there wasn't much doubt left in their minds. Yeah, me neither, cops. It's... uh, I... You hear me say that? It's like... Okay... Let's go through what is called the read technique of interrogation, as I learned on a recent video I made about Into the Shadows, and let's get Chris to confess. Let's go. After all, it's always the husband. While well, giving an official statement over the... Can <laughs> you imagine this? Like, Turns out like wasn't the husband. Turns out like it was that neighbor dude, Nathaniel. It's not Nathaniel. Nathaniel. He- <laughs> it's not Nathaniel. While giving an official statement over the course of the three-hour interview, Chris maintained that the last time he had seen Shannon was the morning of her disappearance, and that he had no idea where she could have gone. He also said that Shannon was the one seeking a divorce, and that he still very much loved his family, and hoped that they would soon return to work out their issues, although he was not hopeful. His theory was that Shannon had taken the girls and fled the state to be with someone else. After documenting everything Chris said and allowing him to dig a hole for himself, the technique at work, the detective then revealed outright that nobody in the entire department believed his story and asked why anyone should believe him. Chris then fumbled around with an answer that implied he was a trustworthy guy. But <laughs> why should we believe you, Chris? I'm very trustworthy. <laughs> Everyone loves me. I'm kind of a big deal. He once again denied doing anything to his family, his children specifically, and said that he could never hurt anyone. He continued to assert that he just wanted them to come home. When questioned about whether he himself was having an affair, Chris denied it without hesitation. Bro, they're (laughs) good. How do you think this is gonna go? They're gonna get that... Uh, What was their name? victoria in there who's not gonna like you because it it turns out you were lying to her about everything and she's gonna be like oh yeah yeah me and chris are having an affair i'm single like there's no problem with me it's all chris's fault that knob and that's they're gonna catch you in so many lies chris you're not that bright are you Still unaware that the police had retrieved the deleted pictures and conversations from his phone. And although he did not stray far from his original story, there were so many inconsistencies that were obvious to everyone in the room that Chris began to physically sweat while sitting in the hot seat. Although, to be fair, if I'm getting grilled by the police, like me getting pulled over in that car, I'm still acting nervous because I'm being, even if I've done nothing wrong, I'd still be like, ah, <laughs> lawyer, 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 lawyer. Seeing this, the detective wanted to press Chris further to continue dialing up the pressure, but by this point it was past midnight, so he instead asked if Chris would be willing to return the following morning for a polygraph test to clear his name. Chris agreed, went home to get some sleep, and then returned the next day. He failed the polygraph. Polygraphs are just... Isn't the stats like they're 51% accurate or something? So it's like they're basically not science. Now, while polygraphs are generally considered unreliable and not admissible in court, Chris hadn't just failed, he had Bombed. According to the test's administrator, polygraphs are graded on a scale, and scoring above two is considered a pass, while scoring below a minus four is considered a fail. Chris scored a minus eighteen. Ah, Chris! <laughs> I still think it's bullshit, though. But I still think he's, like, he's he's guilty. I just think the polygraph's not the way that we proved this. After this, the interrogators dialed up the pressure. They didn't tell Chris his exact score, but they did imply that his guilt was evidence not just because of the polygraph, but because of the lack of empathy it had shown for his missing family. They pointed out that he had not shed a single tear throughout the interrogation. They also began rejecting his denials outright and insisting that he was hiding something. Whenever Chris would protest his innocence, they would shake their heads and reaffirm that they simply did not believe him. To explain away his failing grade, Chris then finally revealed his affair with Victoria, saying that his nerves had gotten the better of him because he'd been thinking about her and how bad it would be for him and Shannon if the affair was to be made public. But this didn't work either, and when detectives did not relent, Chris broke down and asked to speak with his father, Ronnie Watts. Ronnie had accompanied Chris to the police station that day and was being interviewed in another room. Chris, bit of advice here. um, Don't ask for your dad. Don't be like, I want my dad! The correct phrase is, I want my lawyer. That's who you want in this situation. You definitely want your lawyer, Chris. After a brief considerate, especially if you're fucking guilty... Like, you should have it if you're innocent. But if you're guilty, well, what are you doing? Get an expensive lawyer in there as quickly as possible. All the money you have must now be put into lawyers. As your attorney, I have to advise you that I will be plugging my ears for the remainder of this conversation. Smart playoff. After brief consideration, the officers agreed, walked Ronnie to Chris's room, and left them alone to speak in private. However, the security cameras continued to film. (laughs) You know that, right, are you, Chris? Oh, while the father and son sat beside one another, Ronnie asked Chris if there was anything he needed to tell him. Chris then dropped his head and finally changed his story. As Chris tells it in the recording, in the early hours of August the 13th, the night when Shannon returned home from a business trip with Nicole Atkinson, the pair had gotten into a fight in their bedroom over Chris's infidelity, and Shannon had stormed out of the room. Agitated, Chris sat in silence, but after hearing a commotion coming from the direction of the girls' bedrooms, he rushed to discover that Shannon was choking Cece with her bare hands. Oh, maybe he's not as dumb as I think. Maybe he's like, yeah, I want to speak to my dad, and he knows the cameras are rolling, and he's like admitting to his dad a fake story. Bella's lifeless body was beside them and her skin was blue. Chris then said that in a moment of pure rage sparked by the sight of his children's lifeless bodies, he had killed her and panicked and disposed of all three bodies. Stunned, Ronnie sighed and put his head in his hand and said, Good God Almighty, son. Really? I mean, I... I, Wow, that is a twist. If it's true, I don't necessarily believe it yet. I I mean, whoa. Whoa. Let's just see where this goes. Chris's father then advised him to get a lawyer. Well done, Dad. But before they could work out a concrete plan of action, officers re-entered the room and confronted Chris over his recorded admission. The oil field. On August the 16th, 2018, just three days after Shannon's disappearance, the Colorado... Oh, I guess I realised this was happening recently. I guess, well, five years ago now, isn't it? More than five years ago. I guess not so recent. The Colorado State Police arrived at an oil field owned by Andarco Petroleum, Chris's employer. Here, they began the harrowing process of searching for the bodies that Chris had admitted to dumping at the site. In the center of the field, two 400-barrel crude oil tanks sat filled with inky black sludge. Also inside, the bodies of three-year-old Cece and four-year-old Bella were waiting for them. Sergeant Armstrong was the man in charge that day, and after climbing the staircase affixed to the side of the 30-foot-tall tanks, he peered inside through a narrow port at their crest and ordered their contents to be drained. As officers, firefighters, and all workers below began the slow process, they used a metal strainer to catch anything that might be small enough to slip through the drain pipe. After the tanks were empty, Sergeant Armstrong climbed back to the top, peered through the opening once again, and spotted what he believed to be the shape of a small body. Back at the bottom of the tank... A larger access hatch was unbolted and removed so that officers in hazmat suits could enter and begin their search. But that search did not last long. I know, I know that this is where we were heading because obviously this wouldn't be a casual criminalist without someone, you know, without death. But it did change pace quickly, didn't it? It's like, they're just children. They're like similar ages to my children. It's my son's birthday today. Okay. Back at the bottom of the tank, a larger access hatch was unbolted and removed so that officers in hazmat suits could enter and begin their search. But that search didn't last long. Both girls were inside, just as Chris had said they would be, and after photographs were taken for evidence, officers began the careful process of lifting and removing the girls from the foul mixture. However, despite their best efforts, to handle them as gently as possible. I don't want to read that. I don't want to read that. You don't want to hear that. It's just too many details about, like nothing about the crime itself, but just about what happens to bodies. Less than 100 yards away, Shannon's body was found face down in a shallow grave. The only reason she was not inside the tank with her daughters was because that the tank's top hatch, the hatch that Chris had used to drop the girls in, was only eight inches in diameter. Nearby, the missing bed sheet from Chris and Shannon's bed was discovered covered in dirt. The whole recovery process took approximately 14 hours, and officers who had entered the tank to retrieve the bodies had to undergo a thorough decontamination process to remove any me- remnants of the crude oil that made contact with their skin. After taking more photographs and unsuccessfully attempting to remove oil from the bodies, all the bodies were turned over to the World County Coroner's office. It was there revealed that the cause of death for all three was asphyxiation. According to the coroner, one of the girls also had deep scratches on her body and had been, as she had been forced through the narrow hatch. CC had defensive runes that revealed she was awake and aware of what was happening when she died. (sighs) On August 15th, 2018, Chris Watts was taken into custody, and five days later he was formally charged with five counts of first-degree murder, one on count of unlawful termination of a pregnancy, and three counts of tampering with a deceased human body. That's right. Although Chris claimed that Shannon had been the one to kill Celeste and Bella, police simply did not believe him because the evidence did not match his story. The primary issue was that chris had claimed that he'd walked into the girl's bedroom as shannon was strangling Cece with her bare hands but the coroner said that there was no evidence of strangulation shannon's neck had strangulation marks but the girls had likely been asphyxiated with a pillow or a similar object covering their mouths and if you're wondering why there are five first-degree murder charges instead of three the two additional charges were tacked on as the result of a colorado law that allows additional charges when quote a person knowingly causes the death of a child who has not yet attained 12 years of age and the person committing the offense is one in a position of trust with the respect of the victim. I like that law. And i am kind of got my fingers crossed for, uh, where's that death sentence? Come on. It's it's North Carolina. Let's get him in that chair. Preparing for the long legal battlehead, prosecutors were given a trial date and began organizing their evidence. However, long before that date arrived, something unexpected happened. Chris Watts entered a guilty plea for all nine charges. Oh, he's entering a guilty plea so they don't kill him, isn't he? He's like, yeah, I'll take life in prison as long as you don't stick a needle in my arm. A little fucker. His reasoning was that he wanted to avoid a trial because Colorado, oh, this is Cor- Colorado. Wait, who was from North Carolina? That doesn't matter. Colorado still had the death penalty as of 2018 and he was convinced that no impartial jury could be found. Bro, no jury's gonna be impartial to you because the jury's gonna be like, fucking execute him. Strap him to a chair and fry him. A hundred million billion percent by this point news stations had spread his story far and wide and he was the most hated man in the entire state fucking most hated man in the entire country (sighs) i wish they wouldn't strike deals like this because it's like it's a fucking lock-in it's a lock-in very least he's murdered his wife very most likely he's murdered his children how about we kill him huh how about we fucking kill him On November the 19th, 2018, Chris Watts was given five life sentences without the possibility of parole, an additional 48 years for the unlawful termination of Shannon's pregnancy and 36 more years for the three charges of tampering with a deceased body. Are prisons as rough for people who kill kids as they are as rough for people who interfere? Let's just use that word to keep things safe on YouTube with kids. Are they? I feel like, I, I mean, I fucking hope so. Like let's just say that I hope Chris has a uh, he has I hope he has a really short prison sentence. Let's put it that way. And I don't mean that prison sentence ending with him escaping. Hmm? He was then remanded into the care of Colorado Prison System to begin serving his multi-life sentence. Chris's confession. Now, for the sake of everyone familiar with this case, I won't beat around the bush any longer. Chris's story that Shannon had smothered her children was a lie, and we know this because he later admitted it. Originally, directly after his sentencing, Chris claimed that he was innocent and planned to appeal his guilty plea and request a retrial, but after six months in prison, he finally confessed to what really happened. Now Unfortunately, before I tell you what Chris now claims, I need to make you aware of one very important thing. Because Chris's case never went to trial, and there was no evidence discovery process, no extensive witness interviews or testimony, or anything else that typically results from the prosecution's efforts to prepare for a murder trial, the police cannot say for certain that Chris's new version of events is the truth. And since Chris has proven himself to be a liar many times over, this means that we'll likely never know for certain what happened that night. I had a moment of panic there where I was like, I've been calling Chris like guilty as sin this whole episode. I bet he's going to be. Like, turns out he was not guilty of I it. Mean, oh, God, man, I'm going to have to record the bloody episode or I'm going to get, like, <laughs> sued by Chris. <laughs> but no, good news, Chris is in prison forever, and he's guilty. I mean, it's not good news that he's guilty. I wish none of this had ever happened, but fuck Chris. Rot in prison, you... Pr- However, investigators have announced that the new timeline that Chris provided is much more in line with the evidence they collected throughout their initial investigation, and as such, they now themselves accept it as fact. The reason I say all of this is to simply point out that nothing that follows was ever proven in a court of law, so don't sue me. According to Chris, in the early hours of August 13th, Shannon arrived home from a business conference, crawled into bed beside him, and woke him up by rubbing her hands across his body in a way that indicated she wanted to have sex with him. In that moment, Chris said that the sex felt like a test, like she was trying to gauge whether or not he was still sexually attracted to her, and determine if he had been having his needs met by someone else while she was away. He said that he engaged in the passionless act out of obligation, but felt guilty afterwards. After everything was over, Chris said that he had then rolled over onto his side, which caused Shannon to become agitated, sparking an argument between them. Soon, this argument became heated, and became And because he felt so overwhelmed and trapped by the situation, he climbed on top of Shannon, pinned her down, and began yelling at her. Chris, what the f*** is wrong with you? This caused her to start pleading with him, telling him that he was hurting the baby. But Chris said he didn't care because in that moment, he could not think rationally. He wanted to be with Victoria and saw Shannon as the only thing standing in his way. Chris then wrapped his hands around Shannon's neck and strangled her as she flailed desperately beneath him. When she stopped moving, he released his neck, her neck, climbed out of bed, and noticed Bella standing in the room looking at Shannon's face-down body among the mess of sheets, and Bella asked, What's wrong with mummy? Thinking fast, Chris told Bella that Shannon was sick and needed to see a doctor. He wrapped her limp body up in the single bedsheet hiding her neck and swollen face from the girls, and then disposed of the other bed linens in the kitchen trash can. He then roughly dragged Shannon's limp body down the staircase, and as he did, Cece and Bella started crying. Oh, I don't like this. They knew her mother was hurt, and that Chris had caused it. They were terrified of him, but also completely reliant upon him. After backing his truck into the garage, Chris then loaded Shannon's body into the backseat floorboard, before placing Cece and Bella in the backseat without their car seats. Crying, they kept asking, ''Is mummy okay?'' Chris, then, Chris said she was, but the girls will not believe him. This is so intense. And I don't know, like I lost my mum when I was really young and it wasn't anything, you know, dark like this, but it's still like, I don't know, you read these things and it's like, I remember asking these like same questions. Like, I don't really want to go there because it'll upset me. But I remember being a kid and being in and just like not really believing what was going on. God damn, (laughs) Chris was still, yeah, um, I don't like thinking about that. It's still, it's been nearly 30 years, but it's still, you know. Chris said he was, but the girls would not believe him. He said that he then placed a trash bag over Shannon's face so that should the sheet slip, the girls would not see her face as he drove them out to the desert to the site of the oil storage tanks. As he drove, the girls fell asleep and Chris was left in silence for nearly an hour. At no point during that time did he ever reconsider what he was about to do. After parking beside the tanks, Chris stood out from behind the driver's seat, opened the back door of his truck. I don't want to read these details. He kills them. And you don't you don't want more details. Less than an hour later, when his co-workers arrived at the site, they said that Chris was behaving normally, as if nothing was wrong, and it wasn't until he announced that he needed to return home to address a family emergency that they noticed any change in his normal demeanor. This emergency was Nicole Atkinson threatening to call the police. As Chris told this new story to investigators, they asked why he had killed Shannon and not just divorced her, but Chris could not give an answer. It is assumed that if not for Nicole's persistence, he would have finished his work day as normal, driven home, gotten rid of Shannon's important possessions, ironed out the details of his story, and then reported his wife and daughters as missing. He would have told the police that she took the children away and ran away to be with another man, and then he would have openly started dating Victoria, starting a new life with her now that his old life was over. To investigators, this was the most likely scenario, and as it turns out, Chris had been planning something similar for much longer. In letters sent by Chris to true crime author Sherilyn Cadle, author of Letters from Christopher, The Tragic Confessions of the Watts Family Murders*, he revealed that he had been planning Shannon's murder for weeks, and that the events on the night of August 13th were not his first attempt to kill his family. Before then, he had shipped Slip Shannon a large dose of Oxycontin to induce a miscarriage. This attempt failed, but it may have been the reason that Shannon was sick during a business trip with Nicole. He may have harmed the fetus without managing to kill them. In other writings, Chris also revealed that the murders were not a crime of passion, as he first claimed. They were calm and premeditated. While tucking Celeste and Bella into bed on the night of August 12th, Chris wrote that he said to himself, That's the last time I'm going to be tucking my babies in. I knew what was going to happen the day before, and I did nothing to stop it. The Aftermath After the coroner had completed his assessment of Shannon, Cece, and Bella's bodies, they were released to Shannon's parents and permitted to be buried. Originally, Shannon's mother, Sandra Rujek, requested cremation for all three, but she was told that her request was not possible for either Cece or Bella because their bodies had become explosive after being submerged in oil for so long. They were instead entombed and buried inside a special sealed coffin that was designed to prevent the toxic gases and runoff from leaking and polluting the cemetery grounds. The worst part, Sandra said in an interview with a local TV station, was that her family did not even get to say goodbye in person. Now, while I'm aware that Simon doesn't understand open-casket funerals, and I do see how some may view the ritual as odd, every funeral I've ever been to has been open-casket, and for me, seeing the body and saying goodbye one final time has always been a key part of the grieving process. I've never been the type of person to kiss the deceased on the forehead like some in my family, but I did lay my hand over the top of my grandmother's hand after she passed away when I was in high school, and feeling her cold skin helped me finally accept that she was gone. It was closure for me. The Shannon's family, they were robbed of that closure. A private ceremony was held, but none of the bodies were suitable for viewing. Today, barely five years after the murders, Chris Watts is housed inside an out-of-state prison, the Dodge Correctional Institution, in Walpin, Wisconsin, for his own protection. This is because, if he remained in Colorado, there was a real fear that he'd be targeted by the other inmates due to the nature of his crimes. To which I can only say, Oh, no! He's now cellmates with another man, Marcus Johnson, who was convicted of killing his own infant child by submerging him in boiling water. According to the authorities, Chris and Marcus watch each other's bod backs, protecting one another from harm as they go about their days. They put him in a fucking, like, supermax with all the terrorists. According to Chris's former cellmate, David Carter, Chris keeps a picture of Celeste and Bella pinned to the wall of his cell, but he refuses to hang a picture of Shannon. He says that Chris suffers often from a recurring nightmare of two little girls playing catch inside the cell as he sleeps. He refuses to say whether those girls are Celeste and Bella, but David assumes that they are. Dismembered appendices. Number one. Although Chris Watts has now admitted to the murders, he has still yet to take responsibility. Now, instead of blaming Shannon for killing CeCe and Bella, he ba- blames El Diablo for making him kill his family and is currently writing a prayer book called Revelation in the Reckoning. So if you've ever wanted to purchase a prayer book written by a psychopath, don't do it. Here is one of the prayers that Chris has that. F- um, I don't care. Like, Matt's put a quote in for me here, but I don't want this to have any of his words written, uh, read, to be honest, so I'm not going to read that um and you're not going to listen to it. Number 2, for those of you familiar with this case, you may have noticed that I changed the name of Chris's mit- mistress from Nicole Kessinger to Victoria Miller, and this was done for two reasons. First, there was already another Nicole in today's episode, Shannon's friend Nicole at Anis- A- Atkinson, and I didn't want anyone who wasn't paying attention, primarily Simon, to get them confused. <laughs> Second, I also wanted to help distance her from this never-ending from the never-ending slew of harassment she faced online over the past 5 years due to her relationship with Chris. i um, I'm sorry, but she is not responsible for any of this. Leave her alone. However, as I learned toward the end of writing this script, the harassment was so severe that Nicole was forced to change her name, abandoned a career, and moved to a different part of the country to find peace. According to her, many people are accused of being an adulteress, a home wrecker, and even an accomplice to the murders, despite an official statement from police saying that she had no prior knowledge of Chris's plans and was not involved in the crime in any capacity. So leave her the fk alone. What is wrong with you out there? At first, this discovery made me so angry that I considered abandoning this entire project. However, instead of scrapping an entire week's worth of work, I instead decided to take the opportunity to defend Nicole and call everyone as an araster So, While in prison, Chris has been receiving letters from many women attempting to start a relationship with him. This is not uncommon, but the fact that he is relatively young, charismatic, handsome, gag, and has found Jesus is further compounding the problem. He currently has an entire list of female pen pals, and he keeps in contact with them regularly. In many of the letters he sends, Chris talks in detail about the murders, and the women love it. I have no words to effectively express my disappointment. Neither do I, Matt. Wow. I have to say, I'll just attack on at the end here, that this is probably the episode that has made me think about abandoning this the most. I think it just hits home. Like, and plenty of them have. I always think about Pedro López and all of this stuff, but this one with the kids being my kids' age and the loss of the mum and stuff like that, it makes me like I want to be respectful, but it also feels like can you is it can you possibly be respectful enough? Is it possible to be respectful enough to the victims while there are moments in this where I smile and I laugh and it's not just all horror and we try to see some levity in the, in the lighter moments of these episodes, but is that at all appropriate? I don't know. Thanks for being here.